I, again, I would also encourage people to not be kind of intimidated by disaster response. I think sometimes people think there's a stereotype that if you're, you know, a disaster responder, you, you're kind of an extrovert and a loud person and kind of cowboy or cowgirl ready, ready to be <laughs> on the scene. And there really is a, a value in every strength that people bring. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to South Asian Stories. In this episode, I chat with Mariana Kututara. Mariana is the cash and relief lead for the American Red Cross's International Service Department. In this role, Mariana is responsible for providing technical and operational assistance to American Red Cross-funded projects supporting disaster preparedness and response across the globe. Mariana has deployed to disaster response operations around the world, including the Bahamas, Dominica, Ecuador, Nepal, and the Philippines. Mariana was born and raised in Mexico City and is a native Spanish and English speaker. So in this conversation, we discuss many things, including Mariana's childhood in Mexico and how she grew up speaking three languages, English, Spanish, and Malayalam her first overseas deployment in Philippines, and what surprised her most about working with the Global Red Cross Network, as well as Mariana's amazing story setting up financial distributions in the Bahamas and working with a lady who broke down crying in gratitude. It was absolutely lovely to chat with Mariana. Think you'll really enjoy this one. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Mariana Kututara and the American Red Cross. Mariana, welcome to South Asian Stories. We're so pumped to have you. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm really happy to be on your podcast. And so thanks for having me. Yeah. So for people listening, um, you know, you've heard the, the bio. Mariana has done some amazing work uh, through the Red Cross. And, you know, we can't wait to dive into all those stories and more. But I want to start way at the beginning. You know, reading your bio, it sounded like you grew up or were born in Mexico City. Can you tell us a little bit about your childhood? What was it like growing up in Mexico City and, you know, being being South Asian in, in Mexico? Yeah. Um, so my parents immigrated to Mexico about 40 years ago. So my sisters and I were born and raised in Mexico City. That's where I spent the bulk of my childhood. I am uh, the second of three daughters. Uh, so I would say that my life in Mexico and, and as an Indian, I always felt it was kind of normal to have a fusion-y life. Yeah. Um, and I still see kind of bits and pieces of that even now as an adult. But, uh, you know, at home when we were young, and it's, this is still the case when we go home, you know, we'd have idlis for breakfast, uh, enchiladas for lunch, and then, you know, a salad for, for dinner. So I think it was always a, a, a type of a fusion, fusion-y life. Um, and I remember, you know, I, I didn't realize in my nuclear family that felt normal. I didn't realize how it was a little atypical. Uh, but I remember a friend telling me, you know, she, he called when I was in high school. And in Spanish, she asked, you know, hola, puedo hablar con Mariana? And my dad picks up the phone and then he's yelling at me, but in Malayalam and says, Priya, you know, yeah. someone's calling you. Yeah. And then, it, you know, I answer my, the call. I talk to my friend and then uh, hang up. And in, in English, my dad is asking me, you know, why, why, why did that boy call? And in Spanish, I'm telling him, you know, 
it's, uh, you know, it was for a, a class assignment. Estábamos trabajando en un proyecto. And I, that, for me, that kind of English, Malayalam, uh, Spanish mixture was really normal. But I had a friend a couple of years back who was visiting us and she stayed in our house and she was watching us all talk. And she was like, I don't think you realize how you guys like transition. But that, you know, that was my childhood kind of jumping around from culture to language. Um, yeah, that was, I think, our, our, the, the gist of it for us. Yeah, that's wild. So I just um, thinking about being a fly in that room of hearing Malayalam, Spanish and English all spoken maybe on the same sentence, which is probably wild to an, uh, you know, a casual observer. So um, when you were growing up, did you equally, um, equally speak all three languages or did you learn one just through school or and like how, how did how did you? how familiar with all three so I would say like English and Spanish we were I would say we learned them at the same time we were pretty familiar because being born and raised in Mexico you're speaking Spanish all the time all our friends and around us were speaking Spanish yeah but we did go to uh, an international school and it was uh, English-based curriculum got and it also when we were young you know we had family cousins in the U.S. so we would travel summers to visit them and so I feel like English and uh, Spanish were just as, as early as I can remember, I would be able to speak both of them. And then Malayalam, what our parents say is that we, we, when we were young, we'd ask them, like when we'd hear them speaking to each other, we'd ask them, what does this word mean? What does that word mean? Uh, and it was, I think, our way of trying to kind of understand when they were talking. We're like, we want to know what this conversation <laughs> right. is about. Are they talking smack about us? <laughs> yeah. So, and especially when we were younger, my mom used to say, you know, we, we'd go to India and spend like the summer there two months. And she was like, you guys would be super fluent. And then we'd go back to Mexico and then speak English and Spanish and lose a little bit of the Malayalam. Sure, sure. So I would say the Malayalam, I can uh, understand very basic Malayalam and conversational Malayalam, but would not be able to read yeah. or write have a kind of fluent conversation. <laughs> you you know enough to be dangerous, right? Just a exactly. little bit. That's great. So what originally brought your parents to Mexico, you know, 40 years ago? Like tell us the story behind that. So my dad has always been someone who's um he he tells us a story, you know, where he was like he was always interested in the world. And he he used to tell us, you know, even though I'm, you know, I in school academically, that wasn't necessarily my thing, but I was really good at general knowledge and world knowledge. And I used to grab newspapers and like read about different countries and I could, you know, mention any capital city. And so I think he always had a curiosity for life outside of Kerala, life outside of India. And uh, he had, a, this was later in life, but he had a pen pal in Mexico. Uh, and they would correspond back and forth and just kind of learning about, you know, what is life in India like? What is life in Mexico like? And at one point, as he was thinking of kind of pursuing his graduate degree, he had a, his original plan was to go to Australia and get an MBA there. Mm -hmm. And I think his the visa didn't come through or or he wasn't able to get his visa. And in corresponding with his pen pal in Mexico, you know, she said, why don't you come visit Mexico? Why don't you come here. And so yeah. he arranged for a visa to go to Mexico, um, went there and immediately fell in love with the country. Um, and he tells me, you know, for as far away as Mexico is from India, there is a lot of similarities in terms of, you know, very family oriented culture, sure. um, great weather, uh, people who are foodies, who love their food, love dance, love music. So there's a lot of similarities as far apart as it seems. So he immediately kind of felt comfortable and at home there. 
That's awesome. And it's probably like, you know, when you tell people like, oh, we emigrated to Mexico, people are like, wait, where did you go? Like, you know, it's it's pretty, in, in, in my opinion, uncommon for people to go, you know, out of India to places like they always choose like Australia or the UK or America. But Mexico is a, is, is you're right, so similar to the Indian culture. And, you know, I, definitely the food is a lot spicier uh, or, you know, versus some of the the Indian, uh, the American food we get. So uh, I totally get where, where, where that's coming from. So let's talk about, you know, you, you're growing up in, 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 in Mexico. Um, what did you decide to do, you know, after you graduated high school or like, you know, did you have a career path in mind of what you wanted to do? Yeah. So I, when I graduated from high school, I got into University of Rochester. Uh, my older sister was already there. And I, like many South Asians, was following the pre-med path as For well. Sure. <laughs> um, my mom is a doctor. She's, you know, done her career. She's an OBGYN in Mexico. My older sister was also pursuing the, the pre-med path. So I would say it wasn't necessarily that I felt forced into it, but I would say I, I didn't know any different. I was like, well, right. what everyone else is doing. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I kind of jumped onto that pre-med track initially. Perfect. So you get to University of Rochester, you know, your older sister's doing it. Hey, it seems like a right path. Was there a point where you're like sitting in your desk or sitting in your dorm? And you're like, you know what? This may not be for me. Like, did you have a moment of realization that this, this is not maybe the right path for me? And then what happened then? Yeah, I mean, I distinctly remember the moment where I realized that. And uh, I, I mean, I, I had done the entire pre-med track so I think this was my junior year where you know people are studying starting to start uh, study for the MCATs and it's you know it's a lot of pressure it's an intense process to study and 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 take the test so I remember just kind of reflecting that I'd been you know non-stop in the library five to six hours taking practice tests studying all yeah. these you know bio reviewing biophysics organic chemistry and realizing at one point, you know, this is, you know, not just like the hard work I'm going to have to put now, but if I choose this trajectory, this is at least like the next four plus years of my future. And if I'm going to spend this much time uh, studying something, it, it better be something I enjoy. And it's not that I didn't enjoy, but I, I, I don't think I felt passionate. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think I started doing a little bit of a self-reflection and, you know, I wasn't terribly bad at any of the courses like I, I did fine but I also it didn't necessarily come easy I, I had to work really hard um, and not that that's a bad thing either but I I remember being like am I really interested in this uh, and that's when I was like is this something you know when you think about your career like this is what you're going to spend every day eight to five or whatever those hours are that is what you're going to do for your rest of your life and, right right yeah. so once you made that realization, like, hey, this might may not be the path for me. What 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 next? Did you have a journey to find what you were a good fit for? Did you know like humanitarianism was something that we were interested in and you wanted to explore? Like, where did that fall into your journey? So I had actually, while I was at Rochester, had been working at a clinic uh, in the nearby hospital. And part of the work that that clinic did was working with kids who were overweight or uh, struggling with obesity. 
and the conducting workshops with the kids and the parents on kind of behaviors and portion sizes and kind of helping thinking through that. And I think that's that was my first actually entry into the public health world before mm-hmm. I even got into a uh, humanitarian world. And I remember, I think it, it dawned on me like how fascinating that was because I, I, I always knew I wanted to do something kind of of service. Uh, and I was realizing, you know, medicine is really kind of at the individual level. But public health is really looking at the macro level and Mm -hmm. really realizing and being fascinated by the fact that, you know, our behavior has an impact on health and, and, you know, even how we plan for cities and restaurants and their locations. All of that has an impact on on health. And I mean, we we see the parallels now with with COVID, right? Mm-hmm. The things that are helping people stay healthy are are based on community health behavior, right? So we all have to wear masks. We have to socially distance, wash your hands. So those are things that, you know, you can do as an individual and that's great. But where the impact is, is when you subscribe to doing that as a community. Um, and so for me, that fascination of like health is not just an individual thing, but it has those ripple effects across your community. Um, that's where I kind of I, I, I started thinking, I really want to explore this as a career option. Yeah, that's awesome. I love your point of like, you know, sometimes healthcare can be individual versus the macro and you can help mm-hmm. communities and wide swaths of people with, you know, some of the impact you have. And um, I'll tell you, like the American Red Cross, like, you know, people hear about this and it's like this behemoth of this organization that feels like anytime something bad happens, the American Red Cross is there, right? It's like, in my opinion, it's like the first responder. It's like the 911 to the world, right? So it, did you immediately get involved with the American Red Cross when you figured out this is a path you want to go or how, where, where was that in your, in your steps? So after that was, uh, I joined the Red Cross a couple of years, way, a little later into my career. So okay. after I pursued a degree in public health at GW, and then after that, I worked with a global health nonprofit that basically provides access to um, a lot of basically supports with uh, healthcare for marginalized communities. And um, I was working there for two years and then transitioned to the Red Cross where I initially started with a health focus, but very soon um, shifted into disaster management and then got into the the humanitarian world. But I was really fascinated when I joined with, uh, joined the Red Cross that exactly what you're saying, you know, there is a presence everywhere. Uh, and I even remember from my childhood in Mexico, I, you know, when I was in school, we got first aid classes and CPR classes and the Mexican Red Cross came and, you know, gave us those classes. And then coming to the US and seeing, I remember when I applied to my uh, Red Cross job, it was as a program officer for Caribbean health programs. So just being fascinated, you know, that it, it's a global network and that we're all kind of supporting each other. So I knew that I wanted to stay kind of in the international space and that the Red Cross was a great opportunity for that. Yeah. It's like the impact they have worldwide is just incredible, right? So tell us this, like you you work at your the, the, the other nonprofit for a couple of years, you, you come into your first year at the Red Cross you know, people see it from the outside and they're, and they, you know, see this big organization, but what was it like on the inside? Tell us your first week, first day, like anything surprised you about joining the organization and then, and and tell us about like your first uh, overseas involvement. Yeah. So I would say my, I, what surprised me? That's a good question. I think what surprised me is realizing what 
you know, the, the, again, the degree of what a global network it is. Okay. Uh, again, I joined and we had programs, we were supporting programs in the Caribbean, in South America. Um, we, we're working with the global Red Cross network. So just this fascination of, it's not just me working with fellow American Red Crossers, but working with colleagues from Ecuador, from Philippines, from Nepal, from Geneva. So just kind of having, I think I was fascinated with just the exposure I had to how many different people all over the world, all kind of united by one mission. And then just everyone, what was fascinating too is just the, and I'm still fascinated by this is everyone has kind of a different background or a different skill set, but it all comes together in support of a, a response operation. So, you know, you have people who are really good in data analytics, you have people who are really good coordinators, you have different kind of backgrounds, again, and fields that come together in a response. And to me, that's always been fascinating and inspiring. Yeah. So how does like, so let's walk us through a scenario, right? Let's mm -hmm. say, and let's use the Philippines as an example. Something like a typhoon or something happens in the Philippines where they need the help, need the support. What happens to mobilize a big organization and provide the right relief, coordinating the people, the money, the supplies? Like, can you give us an insider look at what that is like? Yeah. So when we respond internationally, we uh, respond when it's a disaster that has exceeded a given place's you know scale or capacity to respond. Okay. So they're requesting the kind of the support of the international of, of the Red Cross family. Um, and so in this case, in disasters like the Philippines, like Nepal, like Bahamas, where we've supported uh, those disasters, that's those are that's a scale where that local Red Cross has requested that support. And, you know, we, we need the bigger family to come in and help us out. Um, and usually different Red Crosses across the globe have kind of different expertise or skill sets. Um, and American Red Cross is always a, a keen partner in supporting our kind of global family. So with the Philippines at that point, uh, one of the big programs that was being implemented in the response operation was a financial assistance program or a cash program. So this is literally giving um, money, finance, uh, financial assistance to affected populations. And part of that, part of why we do that is again, because it just provides flexibility for people to recover in the way they need to. Um, and so that is an expertise that American Red Cross can bring to the table. So our team immediately, you know, when that support was requested, we answered that call um, mm -hmm. and started, you know, we have a roster of volunteers and also staff who are trained in different areas. And so when that kind of specific skill set is called for, we check in with both our staff and our volunteers to see who's available to deploy. Are you ready to go to the Philippines? Um, so in the Philippines, when I, when I deployed to the Philippines at that point, I wasn't, uh, part of our response team yet, but I was in our response team's roster as a staff member. Got it. So let's say, so, you know, you get the bat call to go to, to the Philippines, right. And, um, this is your first deployment. Tell us how you were feeling and like what was going through your head of actually being deployed. It's like, you know. Uh, it's like when a soldier gets their first deployment, it's, it's a little bit nerve wracking. I can imagine. Can you walk us through what that was like? Yeah, it was definitely nerve wracking. I also remember that there was a point before I deployed where we still weren't sure if I was going to deploy or not. So while we were not sure, I, this was during, uh, 
a couple of weeks before Christmas time. So I remember I had already booked my ticket to Mexico and I told my mom, yeah, I'm going to be there. And then when I got the confirmation that you're going to deploy, I called my mom and told her, you know, I'm, I'm only going to be there for two days and then I'm going to fly to the Philippines. Um, it is, I would say it's, it's, it's nerve wracking and I don't think it changes uh, from the first, you know, response to now a couple of uh, response operations I've, I've supported in, it, it's always nerve wracking and it's, you know, you're, you're trying to imagine what am I going to, what am I going to see? How am I going to help? But I think what gave me peace of mind is we, we had a big team there, um, not just American Red Cross team, but again, the, the global network of the Red Cross. Um, and I, you know, I knew if my team is sending me there. It's because they have confidence I can do the job. Um, and I've always been, you know, someone who, who learns by doing and I can, you know, figure it out. So there's, there's a comfort in always having kind of being nervous because I think it keeps you on your toes, but at the same time, you shouldn't let it be like a debilitating fear to the point where you, you know, you backtrack. Yeah. So there's always kind of that fear of the unknown, but I was like, if I don't, you know, I work for a disaster response organization. If I don't understand what it's like, then how can I continue growing here? Yeah. One of the quotes I always go to is like, if you're nervous about something, that means you care, right? You care enough to be nervous. So you, you care yeah. so much about doing the best job you can. And that's why, you know, you had feelings, little feelings of anxiety that, um, you know, were, were, were percolating. So talk us through, you, you get on that plane from Mexico, Christmas time to the Philippines. You land in Manila, I assume, or somewhere around there. What next? Like, what, walk us through what that was like when you hit the ground and, you know, boots on the ground. So we, yeah, we first land in Manila um, and it's a big, typically, at least in these kind of disasters, it's a big operation, right? So even though I'm there in with a hat of providing, helping provide financial assistance and helping the Philippines Red Cross with that, we have so many other people who are experts in information management and ITT and different expertise, right? So it's a big operation. Um, I reported at that point to my team leader, who happened to be also a colleague from American Red Cross. And so she assigned me to um, uh, Aklan province, which was uh, in the Philippines, Western Visayas Island. And she said, you know, you are going to be responsible for supporting this branch of the Philippines Red Cross with their with their uh, financial assistance that they're providing to the communities in the nearby area. And it's it's a little bit of a kind of again like I wasn't I was like okay that's what sure. I'm doing and yeah. uh, and kind of facing it as you go. Um, but I remember kind of asking you know what how is it going to be what are we going to do and you I think what you have to remember in disaster response is that things are going to change very quickly. So obviously you have kind of a macro level goal of providing setting up the program to be able to provide financial assistance to the people who've been affected by the typhoon. But then how that happens will vary from place to place. Um, so it was kind of taking it one step at a time. I remember once I got to um, Aklan province, what really gave me a little bit of, or helped me settle my nerves was I met the, the chapter of the Philippines Red Cross, the staff there, the volunteers who were there. And they were just wonderful people. Um, and it was amazing just to see that again, people who, are taking some time off work or were students, but they wanted to help and support. And so they were ready to kind of get to work. Yeah. Um, so that was, that was wonderful. And as soon as I saw the, the, the amazing people I was working with, I, 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 I stopped worrying. I, I knew that, you know, 
whatever it is we have to do with this team, we can figure it out. Right. Together we are stronger. Exactly. That's amazing. Um, can you tell us any, what are your favorite memories from that, from that deployment? Any stories or, or, or things that come to mind? Yeah, I think one of the, we had, uh, again, in, in that particular operation, we just had a great team and it doesn't mean not that I have not ever had great teams, but this team uh, was wonderful. And I remember we made uh, team shirts of, you know, Philippines, Auckland, cash team. Um, we made matching shirts. Uh, when we would go out to set up the distributions of financial assistance, they were in communities that were far away. Um, so I remember for one of our trips, uh, we were, you know, we woke up at four or five in the morning, took three hours to get there. We set up our financial assistance distributions. We're there all day, came back and, um, the volunteers we were working with, can we, can we stop by and get some McDonald's? <laughs> and I, I, I mean, I just love that because for us, when I was growing up in Mexico, you know, getting McDonald's was also a treat on the weekends, right? Yes. It was like, what was super exciting for us? And so I just, I, I loved it. We all got happy meals. Um, so it was just, uh, again, worlds apart, but just those things that you share in common where it was like, we felt that was our treat. Yeah. And yeah. I could totally relate to that. That's amazing. Yeah. Having those, uh, you know, you're so different in so, so, ways, so many ways, but so similar in a few things that you're just like, when you find that point of connection, it's like this, oh, wow. Okay. You also like a Big Mac too. That's great. Exactly. <laughs> you, exactly. That's wonderful. Can you, um, so like, let's say, um, you know, I'm, I'm a Filipino that has gone through a situation like this. Um, I'm in your, in your province. What exactly occurs if I need financial assistance? Do I like come to your booth and say, Hey, I have this business that, you know, is not operational anymore or what's, uh, you know, my house is defaulting. Like, when do I, how do I engage with your team? And what do you actually give me? Yeah, that's a great question. And I will say that it, it kind of uh, varies from context to context. So, you know, whatever my answer is, it's not that that's going to be the same sure. kind of go-to formula for any any response. But I think there's a couple of things to, to kind of keep in mind. One is in a disaster response context, there are usually several local and, and sometimes in cases of big disasters, international organizations supporting. Um, so one big thing is that we are kind of also working behind the scenes to coordinate our efforts, right? Because we want to make sure that uh, everyone as or as much as possible, people who are affected receive assistance, that we don't duplicate that assistance. Um, so that's something to keep in mind. The other thing is um, when we are planning for a program, we'll set up kind of the, the think through, you know, what how, who are the most vulnerable? Who, who can we support with the financial assistance? So sometimes it might be, you know, that people who lost their businesses are the ones who, you know, the basically like the criteria for receiving assistance. So we'll work very, very closely with organizations on the ground, the local Red Cross to kind of determine. And then we'll usually what we do is work closely with community leaders. So in the Philippines, what we were doing was um, the people who are receiving financial assistance were people whose households were completely or severely destroyed. And that was essentially the criteria for the provinces we had selected. So we went to those villages, we talked to their community leaders and we'd ask them, you know, we need support, we need to like, basically these are the people who will be receiving and the community leaders would help us organize that. Got it, got it. Okay. And um, 
was there any times where you felt like you, you you had a particular story that like really stuck to your heart that you felt good about being able to provide direct service or, or relief? Anything comes to mind? Yeah, I would say my most uh, recent deployment, well, last year uh, to the Bahamas, uh, we 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 I was able to I was there on our first round, so right after the disaster um, or right after Hurricane Dorian had made landfall, and I was one of the first teams to to get on the ground. And uh, towards the end of my time there, we were able to set up the financial distributions. And I remember as people were walking away with their, we were issuing prepaid cards, they were crying and I was concerned. I was like, did we do something wrong? What's happening? And it was just crying from relief of just, you know, feeling like there was some breathing room. Um, I particularly remember the story towards the end of uh, one of our distributions uh, or the end of that first distribution we organized, this one lady with two young kids she had uh, come as we were basically closing things up and, you know, got to the door and she said, I'm so sorry. I, she had evacuated from her island, which had been completely destroyed. So she wasn't familiar with the new Providence Island where we were in. And so she had been looking and trying to figure out how to get to our distribution site and it took her some time to get there. And so finally, when we provided the financial assistance, she she sat down, broke down and cried. And, you know, I remember her saying, you know, this is the first time I'm, I feel like, you know, I know what I can feed my kids for tomorrow. Um, I think it's the first night I'm going to sleep soundly um, for, for, for the first time in a long time since this has happened. Uh, and it, that, that was so touching. And I think it, it was a good, uh, for me, a good reminder as well as like, keeping what's important in mind, because sometimes right. in in the context of a disaster response, you have so many things that are going on, but at the end of the day, you're doing this to, to help people out who've been, um, who've gone through, through a traumatic event and just seeing, just seeing her relief and her happiness. Um, it, it just made, just made everything great. Oh yeah. I can imagine when you see her face and just the raw emotion, right? With the tears streaming down her face and the simple act of being able to provide for your kids, right? Giving them the meal, something that sometimes we take for granted. And like, you know, when we have hot meals and hot showers, it's just like some people will, you know, it's a huge, huge deal for them. So that's amazing that you're able to have that impact. Um, so how many deployments have you been on you know, since the first one in, uh, in the Philippines till now? Yeah, I would say it's, uh, around six or seven. So I've deployed to the Philippines, to Nepal, to Ecuador. I deployed twice to Dominica and, um, recently to Bahamas. So I've been to six or seven deployments. I think I'm forgetting one, but wow. around six or seven. Yeah. Do you, like, how do you think you've grown Mariana from each of the deployments? Have you learned something different about yourself or, you know, how to be more effective in your role after every time you, you, you go? Yeah, I think I would definitely say that, um, Every uh, deployment or every response operation I've, I've supported has been completely different. So one thing I've definitely learned is never to kind of go in with pre-planned expectations. Um, I, I've heard the saying for some, from someone who used to say that their boss used to say, you know, just because you've been to one disaster response operation, that just means that you've been to one. It doesn't mean that you've been to all of them. 
And it's, and I think that's so important to keep in mind, you know, because just because you've had one experience in one context doesn't mean that that, you know, those kind of things are going to replicate themselves mm -hmm. in a, in another situation. So I think uh, primarily I would say what uh, I've learned is just to, to be ready for the unexpected, to always plan and prepare, like never be overconfident. Um, yeah, I would say, I would say those are the, the key things. Yeah. And it's like, um, I love the, the point of every situation is unique, right? Every culture, every community, every disaster is its own place. So you have to use the experience you have of what you gain, but look at it with fresh eyes every time because the problems may not be exactly the same. So that's it, like, it's, it, honestly, you have to be adaptable enough to, to take on every situation you're, you're in. Yeah. Um, I would love to ask about um, how do you manage your own sense of mental health, happiness, personal life, given the, the immense stress and just what the situation asks for you? Have you thought about like, how do I keep myself sane or keep myself together in, you know, in situations that are, could be really high stress like this? Yeah, I think it's 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 a great question because it's something that's really important to keep in mind. Um, otherwise, yeah. you know, you you risk kind of burning out. Uh, I I think for me, there's a couple of things. I when I'm deployed to respond in a in a disaster, we're working with we're working with great colleagues, great people. So I think. One, making those personal connections, being able to kind of use your team as a support to help you de-stress. So even in the midst of, you know, I was giving you that story of, you know, the volunteers at the end of a distribution wanting to go get McDonald's, right? So even in the midst of kind of craziness, there's a couple of light moments there. Sure. And so kind of be immersed in those light moments, you know, there it, it is going to be chaotic, it is going to be crazy. Uh, the other kind of source of motivation for me and to kind of stay balanced is that you even it's crazy because I think people think that, you know, in a disaster response, it's go, 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 go all the time. But it is important to to take that time to kind of have a mental health break. Uh, and that can happen in different ways. You know, for me, sometimes my mental health break and I promise I'm not saying this because I'm on your podcast right now, but I will download some podcasts and either at the beginning of my day or at, after a long day's work before I go to sleep, I'll just listen to something to just disconnect and sure. be away from that environment. You know, any, any story that takes me away from the fact that, you know, you're in the middle of a disaster context. Yeah. Yeah. Just to, to mentally give yourself space because one of the things that, uh, you know, I'm always reminded about is to give the best care for people, whatever it is, you have to be the best version of yourself, exactly. right? If you're at 50% or 25%, like there's no way you can give more of yourself to the other people who need it. If you're not hundred percent yourself or close to it as, 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 as much as you yeah. can. And there's very like practical things that, you know, even when we train people to deploy uh, to disasters, there's a lot of kind of practical things that seem small, but are just so true. Um, and some of them are, you know, before one of the things that I do before I go out to respond to a disaster um, is take care of your life admin stuff, right? Pay your bills, you know, coordinate anything, cancel appointments because you don't want those kind of life stresses to be yeah, hitting you stick. when you're, when you're, you know, focused on, on, uh, on a response operation. Yeah. 
Yeah. So just kind of small things like that um, bring things that you enjoy. You know, if if you, for me, for example, I love drinking coffee. So if you're not sure, you know, uh, where you're going to be able to get coffee, and it's one of those things that just helps you, you know, wake up and get through your day. Um, I pack with me little like instant coffee things. Um, and yeah. so I think it's just also keeping that in mind and 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 making sure again do do what you need to do to to um, guard your mental health. Uh, and, yeah. and also flag it when you're not feeling our, our team has all has always been great about, it. you know, if you're feeling tired, if you're feeling a little burned out, then flag it because there's always someone that you can send after, you know, after you're there to continue the work, to continue supporting. But as you said, you know, if you're burned out, then you're, you're becoming more of a problem than a solution. Totally. Totally. Right. Like, you know, they, they, they may need to send someone to save, save you, right. Or to exactly. help you. <laughs> so talk to us, um, what is what is your current role and what are you currently passionate about? Because, you know, you've done these deployments, you've seen a lot, but are there any things, can you give us a peek under the hood of what's next of what, what you know, what you're excited to go tackle? Yeah. So in my current role, I'm the cash and relief lead for American Red Cross. So basically what that means is for any international emergencies that we're responding uh, during a response context, I'm helping either send teams or myself to deploy and support disasters uh, and providing that remote technical support. And when we're not responding actively to a disaster, then we're doing all our preparation work. So thinking through how can we respond better? How do we improve the efficiency, the speed and the quality of our response? So those are some some of the things I'm working on that I'm really excited about. Um, one of the things, for example, now with uh, COVID having affected all of our ability to travel and yeah. working remotely, we are really, you know, it's really pushing us to be creative and think about can, you know, how can we expand like volunteer deployments or remote deployments, we should say, and what does it take to remote deploy? Um, so exploring kind of out of the box uh, things. So I'm excited to see. I mean, we're still kind of thinking through that. But I think, you know, if, if there is something that COVID has taught us is that, you know, you won't always have the ability to to travel. So I think just looking at seeing how we can continue to provide uh, remote support or assistance for disasters uh, in creative or different ways. Yeah, that was going to be my question is like this pandemic has really turned so many things on its head. And the the hard part is, as you said, is re- providing relief, which you normally had a playbook for, is completely changed because of lack of travel and then just exposure to the, to the virus. So can you talk through what are those creative solutions that you've been able to come up with to help with, uh, you know, remote help? We're basically kind of setting up networks of almost like a helpline. So one thing to keep in mind is that, you know, even though, again, we're responding when there is a need for international support or assistance. So with we, when we activate someone to kind of to remote support, then that person is kind of on the deck to do some of the behind the scenes work, to do some of the research, to really, you know, if 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 you have someone in an affected place that's on the ground going out and getting a lay of the land, then if you're behind the scenes in, you know, in your computer, then you can start doing some of that planning or organizing that, that data. So I think there's a lot of uh, ways that we're exploring how, how we can continue doing that. That's awesome. Yeah. And 
I think just to keep the wheels turning and finding ways to, to, you know, provide the most impact you can, despite what's going on, like that's very commendable. That's, that's great. Um, one question I've, I've always wanted to ask um, is how, so you guys provide, you know, relief, financial relief to these communities. Where does your funding come from? Like how do, how does the Red Cross, um, you know, get the money to help support these communities of need? Yeah, so the Red Cross receives funds from, I mean, from the public. So people, uh, especially big disasters, people log on to redcross.org, donate. And then we also get uh, uh, funding from companies who will want to also do something and provide assistance. So they will also donate their funds. And usually when, especially when we're responding to an international disaster, you know, there's funds coming from all over. Um, So that's coordinated through our kind of family network, the International Federation, because Again, our job is to really support the local Red Cross and their response and make their work easier. So we're kind of coordinating all of that and providing the the resources, the financial right. resources and the technical support as needed and making that kind of coordination process less uh, cumbersome for them. Right. Because uh, sometimes it's just a hassle to like not only you know provide support, but the administrative part of it of like courting where all that money is and funneling in it and getting into the places which need the most need like that requires a ton of work and you know needs dedicated support so i I, that that makes a ton of sense um so do you see yourself um like being at the red cross uh, you know for extended amounts of time or or, um, are there other passions outside of the red cross that you're thinking about exploring can you give us a holistic sense of who marianne is a person overall yeah, I will say it's it's an interesting question because I think um, as you're asking that, it's kind of reminded me that I, I I don't think, you know, I always used to envy people who, you know, if you ask them, what do you want to do with your life or what do you want to be? And they had an answer, like, I want to be a teacher, <laughs> a police officer. And I'd always ask myself, you know, how, how do you know or how are you so sure that this is what you want to be? So for me, I think as I reflect on my career, I've landed through different opportunities just because I, you know, I said yes to opportunities. Um, I, you know, looking back again, I I started uh, with a pre-med track and switched and said, okay, let's go into public health. There's, you know, something interesting here. Um, And then from public health, as I was joining the Red Cross, I transitioned into uh, disaster management and then disaster response. And so I think with my career, what I've, I'm, I'm not sure, to be honest, what I see for myself in the future, but what I've learned for myself is that I like, I like feeling uncomfortable. I think that's where I perform, where I'm uncomfortable, where I feel like, you know, it, it motivates me, I guess, being comfortable with being uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, and I think as I, as I also think through a little bit of my career choices, I've enjoyed learning what my strengths are, and then being able to apply those strengths into different roles. So for me, it's not necessarily that I have a next, um, you know, a next career in mind or a future path totally mapped out. But I know that I've learned that I love problem solving. I love working with a group of diverse individuals. I love being challenged. So I think as long as I can keep using those those kind of motivations and those strengths of mine and applying that in in whatever whatever it is I'm meant to do or whatever my next wherever my next journey takes me I'll be I'll be happy. 
Yeah, because it's almost like you you know what your strengths are and how do I double down on them of like, you know, comfortable with being uncomfortable, problem solving. Those are skills that can be applied to a wide variety of different things. And I think, you know, having the experience you've had just develops the core skills to, to, to do that. That's amazing. Great. Well, um, I'd love to transition to our rapid fire questions. And uh, these are the questions that we've asked all our guests and we've gotten some really incredible responses. So really excited to hear what you have to say. So first question for you, Mariana, is, is there an item that you have bought recently that has dramatically improved your life? It could be big or small, um, service or, 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 or non-service, just something that has uh, improved your life. So I will say, even though you, you, I'm not wearing them right now, but I did buy a wireless headphones. Um, and I, I mean, I love, again, I love listening to podcasts. So I think that has been my, my investment, my most recent investment where I really like kind of listening to stories, learning new things. And it's really motivating me to kind of go on walks, go on hikes and, <laughs> and just disconnect. What specific headphones did you buy? I got the Beats. Uh, nice beats pro yeah beats pro yeah and um what is on your current podcast list what are you listening to so uh, right now the most let me see the most recent episodes i've listened to are the most recent podcasts uh all the wiser have you okay. listened yet uh rough translation cool and how i built this Yes, how I built this is a classic. Guy Raz, man, yeah. he's he's one of my heroes. <laughs> um, awesome, cool. So, next question is: um, When you think of a South Asian person you look look up to in your field, who would you say comes to mind, and why? So, I would say, I mean, I don't necessarily have a specific person in mind, but I will say that when I joined the Red Cross. And when I joined, even before joining the Red Cross, when I joined uh, the global health nonprofit I was working for, I remember seeing South Asian women in management and director positions. And I genuinely remember being like, oh, you can, you know, you can do this. This is, you know, there's other people who look like you who are in this career path. So I, I, I mean, again, there's not necessarily anyone specific that stands in mind, but I definitely have felt comfort in seeing other South Asian men and women who are in similar fields. Yeah. And, and, and to what we were talking about earlier is like having more and more people like you or people in positions that like look like you gives you a sense of hope in the sense of like, um, excitement be like I can be that person one day right exactly uh, and you know it doesn't that's what, seem like so foreign or sort of like oh this doesn't seem like it's for me exactly yeah and you know that's why I love featuring people like you is because you know someone listening can you know hear your story and say I can do that too just like you saw someone else that you know could, could inspire you the same way it's all all, all a chain yeah so, I love that Okay, next question is, what is a movie or book that has had the most impact on you? So I would say the book that I, I always comes to mind for me is uh, In the Time of Butterflies by Julia Alvarez. And it's the story of four sisters, uh, Mirabal sisters, and how they kind of work and channel their individual strengths to help overthrow the Trujillo regime, regime in uh, the Dominican Republic. And um, I realized I, I didn't 
I guess I had never really thought about why I liked it, but uh, as I've reflected more on it, it's, I think just under a story that shows the power of women and the fact that, again, it's for different women, different personalities, you know, it doesn't necessarily have a stereotype of you need to be this loud, you know, personality and everyone kind of channeled their own strengths. Each of these sisters channel their own yeah. strengths. So I, I love that. Um, and then also it just gave visibility to, you know, oftentimes when we hear about like big dictatorships or, or, or in history, when you learn about world history, you know, you learn about some of these bigger uh, World War One, the Holocaust, bigger events, but uh, with this one, it gave visibility to a country and its history. So I love that, so a smaller country and its history. That's amazing. Did someone uh, recommend this book to you or how did you find it? Yeah, so I actually, when I was in high school, uh, I loved playing a lot of sports. So I was in our basketball team. And one of the things we uh, did in high school was we traveled to different areas in Latin American Caribbean and kind of hosted a little Latin American tournament between high schools. And so this was uh, in the Dominican Republic. We were staying with a host family and um, that host family gave me that as a gift uh, before leaving. So that's great. So it stuck with you for a while. That's yeah, amazing. Yeah. It's been cool. It's an amazing book. I highly recommend it. Awesome. Yeah. That, that I'll definitely check it out. Okay. Um, this question I love, and I'm, I'm excited to hear your response. Um, what specific pieces of advice would you give an up and coming South Asian person who's interested in humanitarianism and interested in joining something like the Red Cross, wants to get more involved, doesn't know exactly what know what to do, what advice would you give them and why? I would definitely encourage them to, to first of all, to find volunteer opportunities. Okay. So for example, with the Red Cross, you can log on to redcross.org. There's a, we have a kind of a tab for volunteers and you can even take a quiz to kind of figure out, you know, what, what volunteer opportunities can I uh, match up for? So I would just say, look for those volunteer opportunities. It doesn't have to be with the Red Cross, it can be with any other organization, but find those opportunities. Um, and it, and don't wait till, you know, a big disaster hits uh, to, <laughs> to volunteer, right? Because we, you know, oftentimes it's, it's the big ones that get the visibility, that get the media attention, but there's also smaller disasters. There's uh, home fires, there's kind of flooding in restricted areas, and it's still people who need help, who need visibility. Yeah, and, and so I would definitely recommend people to to even now if if there's you know nothing going on in your community, I'm sure there is something that you can support with, whether it's to prepare for a disaster, to respond for a disaster. Um, I again, I would also encourage people to not be kind of intimidated by disaster response. I think sometimes people think there's a stereotype that if you're you know a disaster responder, you you're kind of an extrovert and a loud person and kind of cowboy or cowgirl ready, ready to be <laughs> on the scene. And there really is a, a value in every strength that people bring. So if yeah. you like being the behind the scenes person, if you're a little bit more of an introvert, you can still be valuable in a disaster response. If you are really good with talking with people and, you know, and, and, and having that one-on-one -on -one relationship or connection with individuals, then you can also be good at disaster response. So I think it's don't let kind of don't, don't, feel that there needs to be kind of a profile for uh, sure. humanitarian work and definitely find opportunities uh, to, to volunteer and, um, or to intern with uh, organizations, humanitarian organizations. That's great. One follow-up question on that is, do you recommend any type of 
formal education or uh, background, like I know you got your master's degree, any sort of that you think is a requirement or something that's good for people to, to look at if people want to attack it from a education standpoint? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely, uh, I mean, I didn't necessarily go into a, a degree on like <laughs> disaster response, uh, but I did come from a public health field. Yes. So I think kind of just, you know, from an academic perspective, going into international development, um, those kind of careers, because I think it just gives you a global view um, of, and especially if you're thinking of international disaster response versus domestic response. But I would also encourage people, there's, uh, you know, on, if you go to ifrc.org, um, the kind of International Red Cross webpage, there's a lot of uh, learning courses that people can subscribe to. Oh, um, cool. And you, you know, you don't have to be uh, affiliated or you don't have to be uh, part of, employed by the Red Cross to subscribe for those courses. So I think there's a lot of opportunities to learn a lot of um, talks and webinars that give people, to, that people give just to kind of, you know, get your feet wet on like, what is a disaster response like? Yeah. Yeah. How do I define this and what actually happens? Or they can just listen to this interview. Exactly. Right? Exactly. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, so any final ask for the audience, anything you'd like to close with? Yeah, I would just say, I would just tell people, you know, take risks, step out of your comfort zone. Um, I would say also follow your gut. So, you know, when you're, when you're feeling like this might not be for me as you're thinking through your career choices, or if you're feeling, you know, I'm ready for a change, listen to your gut um, and, and, and then have confidence that the rest will work out. And even if it doesn't work out, you know, it doesn't work out for a reason and you, you will survive. Yes. Yes. There's a path for everyone. Exactly. Where can people find you if they want to learn more about you, your, you specifically in your, in your story? Yeah, well, if I can provide my my email, I'm like private on social media, so sure, sure, yeah, but I'm happy to provide that. And you know, I I, I know I said you know there's a lot of um, resources available for people who um, who are interested in this career path, but also you know reach out to people who are in the career path, and I'm happy to kind of talk to people who are interested in that. Yeah, um, so we'll what we'll do is we'll get your email after the interview and include it in our notes so so people can reach out if they. Perfect are interested in, 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 in finding out more, but thank you so much for an incredible interview. Um, your work is just speaks for itself. The work of the American Red Cross is always amazing. And just for me hearing like deeply what, what goes on behind the scenes is incredibly valuable. So thank you for everything you do. Thank you for having us. And thank you for this platform. I think it's a great thing you're doing. Hey guys, it's Samir again. If you'd like to hear more amazing stories on South Asians around the world, please check out SouthAsianStoriesPodcast.com and subscribe to our email list. That's SouthAsianStoriesPodcast.com. Thanks a lot and see you next time.